Now, welcome back to the Endoscopy News Podcast. Today, we have an interview with Marco Bruno, gastroenterologist in the Netherlands, who last year published a nationwide study of bacterial colonization of endoscopes. This study included 74 Dutch centers and found that 17% of duodenoscopes and 13% of EUS scopes were contaminated. Of course, this is worrying because it's been estimated that if you use a contaminated endoscope on a patient, there is a 10% risk that this patient will come to harm. Fortunately, changes in the design of modern scopes by companies such as our sponsor Pentax Medical does help to minimize this risk. I know that Pentax has developed a fast scope drying system called Plasma Typhoon, which uses ozone and a controlled storage system called Plasma Bag, which uh, keeps endoscopes clean for up to a month. But Marco Bruno thinks that we mustn't become complacent about this sticky problem. Sticky because it's all about biofilm, of course. Bruno, what made you interested in scope contamination? If you would ask me like 10 or 15 years ago, are you going to do research in infection endoscopy? I would say, well, infection endoscopy, you know, that, 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 that's not on the subject, that's not an issue. But then when we got affected by an outbreak, like, what is it, um, 10, 12 years ago, things were very serious, you know, all of a sudden, we were confronted with the fact that because of an endoscopy, uh, about 30 patients did got an infection. And luckily in our hospital, nobody died from the infection. But then talking to colleagues around the world, there were multiple outbreaks, but Patients did die because of the infection. How often do you visit, you know, the cleaning rooms and how often do you see a person cleaning scopes and then got aware how intricate the design of scopes is and how difficult it is to clean them, you know, with an ESP scope taking, what is it, more than 130 steps to clean the scope. Wasn't it the 1993 American Society for no. Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, which estimated that the risk no. of catching an infection from an infected endoscope was about one in 1.8 million procedures. Then uh, a few years later, I think maybe 10 or 15 years later, I think Ofsted, I believe, went back to that original publication and found some uh, miscalculations and the number was kind of uh, you know, increased, but still the overall risk relative to the number of procedures and the good you try to do with endoscopy was relatively low. And then, of course, all the, of all, but the outbreaks were reported in my hospital, in other hospitals. And then I start talking with you know, colleagues around the world and almost everybody could tell me that there was a problem in the hospital uh, at one point in time and they had faced an outbreak, but nobody's publishing it. So there's a huge underreporting how big it really is, we don't know. We now have an article accepted in endoscopy where we did a kind of recalculation with regards to the, um, to the, to the risk and we try to calculate a minimum risk based upon the outbreaks in the Netherlands over a 10 years period. And then already it is 160 times higher than the corrected number of Ofsted to the Kimberley original publication. Yeah, wasn't, 
Wasn't there a report in 2018, uh, a report on the top 10 health technology hazards, which uh, I think ranked failure to clean flexible endoscopes as one of the biggest threats to healthcare delivery of the future? Of course. Actually, I, I think it only came second to cybersecurity. Yeah, you know, I, I guess we, we should not kind of overreact because in all probability, we do more good with endoscopy than we cause harm. You know, that's the first conclusion you have to make, of course. But on the other hand, if you are a doctor, the first thing you plea is do not harm, eh? prima non nocere. I think it's, it's a hazard already now based upon the publications. But if you take into account that in particular NDRO infections, the outbreaks with NDRO bacteria are from the last decade and were never reported before that time period. And if you see the alarming um, facts with regards to antibiotic uh, resistance in, in the world. We now only talk about a patient who is, you know, gets a bacteria from a previous patient who gets sick immediately. That's, you know, what we're talking about now. But that's not the only thing that can go wrong. And NDRO you can carry with you for a prolonged period of time. And it can harm you after a few months, after you get immunocompromised or you get an infection or you need an operation. Of course, we need to understand the issue and the problem, but most of the effort should go into trying to redesign scopes uh, to prevent infection, but also to educate the people that clean the scopes and give them ample time. Very often, uh, you know, the doctor needs a scope. Give me the scope. Give me, I need the scope. Quick, scope, scope, because next patient. Because you need to spend time. You need to spend, you know, effort in cleaning the scope. And you cannot speed that up, that process. To deny the issue, what some colleagues I think are doing right now, I think that that's that's wrong. Another issue is the fact that we are so focused on MDRO. So that's multi-drug resistant organism, because that is you now the easy kind of bacteria outbreak to recognize because you see a pattern. All of a sudden, multiple patients are infected with an MDRO and if you have a smart microbiologist or a smart you know infection prevention person he or she will try to trace back you know what is the common denominator and that's exactly how we were alerted by my colleague Margrethe Voss who is doing all the research because she found out that there was a common link that was ERCP where you had a fixed cap it's impossible to clean because you know there are so many intricate parts and also in one of the outbreaks because we were able pick out behind the recess of the elevator some human tissue and we could genotype that with the blood cultures of patients. So, you know, there's no there's no discussion about the fact that there was a relation. Most prevalent, uh, if you talk, you know, if, if you have the discussion about scope infections, it's pseudomonas. It's a very, Klebsiella pseudomonas are two very uh, prevalent bacteria. Where the source of the contamination is, so so where the bacteria kind of resides and is, you know, shielded from cleaning and high level disinfection. Indeed, we thought, you know, it was the elevator and it, that's the case. But now we have scopes that have been redesigned. We now have detachable caps, disposable caps. We even have now scopes with disposable elevator inside the cap. But still keep on seeing contamination. So the working channel is the main culprit. 
Now in Leeds we use disposable buttons for each endoscope and each procedure. We use disposable bunks uh, for each procedure and we use, uh, of course, when the scope gets cleaned, it, we use a disposable brush to clean through the channels. Is that sufficient, would you think, to get on top of the problem? I do, I do believe, you know, that it helps to reduce the chance of a scope being contaminated. So it all helps to, you know, try to contain the problem. Now, and then, of course, you can think about, you know, disposable working channels. And of course, the disposable scopes, where, you, where, you, where by definition, of course, you, you don't have the problem of a contaminated working channel. So is it wear and tear within the scope channel which causes the problem or? We've done more scope inspection where we couldn't show any kind of tear or wear or whatever inside the scope. So there's a biofilm somewhere in the scope. And biofilm, you know, that's is a whole different discussion. And I've talked to people in technical universities, nobody understands biofilm. So, so the first thing is try to prevent the biofilm from occurring because if it's there, as far as my knowledge goes now, you know, it, it is impossible to remove biofilm at this point in time unless you replace the part. So it, it remains enigmatic. But in your multi-center study from the Netherlands, it wasn't just yes. duodenoscopes which had a problem with contamination. It was EUS scopes too. Why, why would that be? It's the same. You know, they have also an elevator, of course. So that's kind of the same design. Uh, those elevators, of course, are not, you know, there's not a disposable cap. So what, what we have been contemplating and discussing is, you know, uh, we have these reports after ERCP. Why don't we see these reports after EUS? in the literature, which is intriguing. Now, one of the reasons, of course, is that what we do with ERCP is more invasive. We do a, a sphincterotomy, so we expose the mucosa and small blood vessels to the tip of the scope and what's ever there, so you get maybe easier translocation. You also, you know, you, you inject contrast, you apply force, so, you know, there's the, probably there are more opportunities for bacteria to translocate. And there you have, you know, this other uh, interesting concept where many people don't really grasp the issue with exogenous and an endogenous bacteria. You know, whatever you do with design or with, even if you use a disposable scope, you cannot do anything about endogenous translocation. Of course, you can try to avoid overfilling uh, of the of the of the, the the bile ducts, of course, because that promotes translocation, but you know, the bacteria is there. It's in the stomach or it's in the mouth of the patient or in the duodenum. So it's there. You cannot do anything about it. With scope contamination, you are talking about exogenous bacteria. So bacteria from another patient. Of course, we do drainage procedures with EOS, but there the patient is already septic and he has a bacterial infection. We do not know exactly how it works, but, but I, I think that will probably be the the reason why the probability of a post-scope infection with ERCP is higher than with US. Yes, but in the study from the Netherlands, you found a contaminated scope from 24 out of 74 centers. Yeah, but, but actually, 50 centers had entirely clean scopes. I thought that was reassuring. Yeah, but you know, it's a, it's a cross-sectional image of what's going on. You know, if we would have done the study a month later or three months later, maybe 24 other centers will be affected because that's the same we see when we do our cultures. We, we do cultures every four weeks and we do culture after every endoscopy because we do a lot of studies. 
and the pattern of you know contamination is very odd. You know, it, it, it's there, then it's gone a few times, then it's there again. And that's exactly how biofilm works, of course, because biofilm, the, the bacteria resides beneath a kind of a membrane, and the membrane needs to kind of be teared open, being able to contaminate a patient. And also, cultures are not 100% sensitive. Some American sense, of course, work like this. Instead of six scopes, they have now 24 scopes, and the scope is only being used after a negative culture, which takes a few days, of course, to, you know, to become available. And that's at least a much safer way to work, of course, than what's now happening, you know, when they do a culture every month. And maybe if the culture is positive, you, there are already 30 days past, potentially could have contaminated patients with the bacteria you culture today. So are there published guidelines on how we should culture endoscopes and how often it should happen? Not really. So what we do for, for kind of regular care, maintenance and safety procedures, we culture every month. And we do do cultures after every endoscopy, but that's for research purposes. So after we have cultured the scope, the scope is going through, you know, has gone through all the cleaning methodologies and it's still being used in patients. We only get the results from that culture for research purposes. It's not for clinical application. Now, something else has been suggested is that we should send our endoscopes back to companies for complete dismantling and disinfection. What do you think to that idea? Well, of course, it, it, it's not an option for, for kind of to, as, as kind of an, uh, a solution for the daily use of scopes. But I do believe that the regular maintenance, in particular by certified organizations, bodies, is incredibly important. You know, there are, there are of course, uh, companies that, that are available for maintenance of scopes that are much cheaper than the original scope manufacturer. But the surface level of some of these companies is far below par. So I, I do believe that, that it's, it's incredibly important to choose the right partner for maintenance of scopes and, and don't, you know, don't try to cut back costs on maintenance of scopes. Now, earlier you mentioned single-use endoscopes, but they do have issues, don't they? There are many issues. But I bring back to your mind that, and I, you know, when I was trained as a gastroenterologist, I know, you know, we got the first disposable accessories. And I know my former teachers, Guido Tietkat and Kees Huibrechts, a very famous gastroenterologist in, in, their, in, in their times, they thought, ridiculous, ridiculous, you know, waste of money and... And now everybody is using disposable accessories, everybody, all around the world. So what we found crazy, like 10, 15, 20, what is 25 years ago, now is reality. You're very right. There are lots of issues. There, of course, are costs involved. Now it's very expensive. Although, if you look at some of the companies, they are able already to produce scopes. Uh, maybe you're not talking about ERCP scopes yet, but, you know, in urology and pulmonology, they make scopes of three, four hundred euros already. If you calculate all the costs involved, also with reprocessing, with maintenance, you know, there, there, there is a, a tipping point at, at, at somewhere for that few 10 euros we, we don't want to risk anymore. It's, it's true right now, an ESCP scope of with, what is it, two and a half thousand euros or whatever, you know, I cannot afford it. And of course, there is the issue of waste. Scope manufacturers have to be. Um, very creative how to deal with that. Also, you know, healthcare authorities need to be aware of the issue because now 
everything you know that is produced after a medical procedure is getting incinerated. So a disposable duodenoscope does it handle as well as a normal one? Yeah, well, I've been involved in those, and I've done procedures in patients with um, disposable scopes. Um, you know, they do, they do handle quite well, and in particular, you know, it's, it's this was the first or the second design disposable uh, endoscope, and already with that design, we were able. I don't know, but the vast majority of patients we were able to treat without any issue. So. Uh, so imagine, you know, if, if people really start using it and there are, uh, there are multiple manufacturers uh, offering these scopes, that will go incredibly fast with regards to kind of redesign, better uh, applicability. You might get even different scopes for different types of indications, you know. The sky is the limit there. So people often think that I believe that tomorrow everybody will use disposable scopes. Of course, that's nonsense. We have these reusable scopes, that's a, that's a huge investment in money and it will not go away tomorrow and not in one year's time and probably not in five or even 10 years time. It's there to stay. And that's also why I believe it's so important that we do added research to also try to contain the problem of contamination of reusable scopes and not only focus on disposable scope because it will have a place. And maybe when you and, and I are, you know, are in a retirement home uh, and we need an endoscopy, we get a disposable scope. But in, in the foreseeable future, there will be a very gradual transition. Um, and probably at first, these scopes will be used in, um, in certain indications, certain risk. And for example, one is, you know, um, would you like, if you, if, you, if you know the patient has an MDRO infection or is contaminated, it's not an infection, sorry, he's contaminated, he's a carrier of an MDRO bacteria. Do you want to use your, your reusable scope in that patient? Then you run the risk that the scope gets contaminated with an MDRO. That's bad news because you want to prevent biofilm and whatever. Some of these patients where we do ERCPs nowadays, they're very complex patients. And they are patients who have been in hospital for a long, long time, have underwent multiple procedures, not only endoscopy, but, but and these, of course, are the patients which are prone for MDRO infections. Do we know the prevalence of MDRO carriership in patients undergoing ERCP? We don't. We are going to do a big study now, trying to find that out. But that would be very interesting. I would be very curious what the preference rate is. And in all probability, it also will vary from place to place. It will be very different if you probably go to your unit, my unit, or you go to Italy or Greece or Pakistan or whatever. It's probably very much related to the region and the area and also the amniotic usage because it's amniotic prevalence, of course, and the resistance of that region. So there, there, there are many interesting issues with regard to this subject. And disposable scopes, yes, I'm a believer of disposable scopes, to be quite honest. And I, I do think they will play a, a, a more important role in the near future, but then in kind of, you know, focused areas of endoscopy in risk groups. But I would not be surprised if in 10, 15 years time, um, the larger portion of endoscopy will have migrated into disposable endoscopes. So that, or there's also a lot of environmental imprint with regards to the use of reusable scopes. Um, so it's not a black and white discussion. 
Do you remember the days, Bruno, when we used to do diagnostic ERCP? Now, that's a long time ago. And of course, imaging has taken over from diagnostic ERCP. Um, I just wonder if ordinary luminal endoscopy would go the same way and diagnostic endoscopy would be replaced by, by capsule or some other imaging modality. What do you, what do you think to that? Sure. I, I do believe that Part of what we now do, in particular screening type of endoscopy, uh, will be replaced at some point in time by other techniques. Um, I think there will always be a portion, a category of patients where uh, it's still worthwhile to have a visual look of the mucosa. But again, I think you're right that over time, therapeutic type of endoscopy will be more important and will prevail over diagnostic endoscopy. Yeah. And also, you know, the other point is, if you see what all this so-called diagnostic endoscopy brings and what, what the true value is of all these diagnostic endoscopies in dyspeptic patients and whatever, it's almost negligible. It's almost zero. So it's all driven out of fear that we do things. And, and the most difficult thing for a doctor is to do nothing and only talk with the patient. Of course, you will find patients with undetected cancer, and it is like uh, 0. something percent. And is it is it worth, you know, all that effort? There's a tipping point, it's, you know, somewhere, that, because it's a, it's a huge investment in time, money, and whatever. And maybe also, you know, if there would also be collateral damage with regards to contamination and cross-contamination of patients. I think I, I think you're right with regards to, you know, the transition therapy of ther diagnostic therapeutic, uh, but it's also about the right indication for an endoscopy, which is sometimes, you know, also in our profession, we can do something about that. Now, in Leeds, we nowadays send our scopes for central processing elsewhere in the hospital, well, in the actual hospital central reprocessing hub. The advantage for our endoscopy unit is that we don't need to second stuff to, to clean our endoscopes. All the nurse and stuff and auxiliaries can be but, used, uh, can be utilized in the rooms and looking after patients. What do you think to that development? Is that something you've seen elsewhere? Well, we have kind of the same, although the the facilities are still located nearby the endoscopy uh, rooms, but but it's not not in our control. It's it's, it's run by the uh, disinfection unit of the hospital. I, I you know I, I do see advantages there. Of course, on the other hand, I think there are also units that have very dedicated people cleaning their scopes, and. Sometimes it's questionable if you centralize issues, in particular in the hospital, if, if things really get better. And for the nurse, it's not it's, it's not her, the, the core business. You know, it's it's just something that she has to do extra on top of all the other stuff. And also, every scope has a different instruction set with regards to how you should clean the scope. It's a profession to clean scopes adequately. It's not just something you do like on top of other responsibilities. So with the staff of these remote reprocessing units working far away from the endoscopy rooms, yes. you, you worry about the, the level of training and the ownership, I guess, over the, over the cleaning process. They need to be properly trained and, you know, everybody who feels valued does a better job. Simple as that. And, and also, you know, it gets disconnected from the patient. And in our case, 
the people who clean the scopes, they do come into the room sometimes and they do see the patients. They, they, they see the recovery room where the patients are after procedures. So they know they are part of a team trying to make things better for patients. And I, I do believe that's, that's kind of uh, intrinsic motivation to do things better. Now, of course, immediately after any endoscopy, there is a there's an immediate cleaning step yes. in the endoscopy room where the nurses flush through the channels with protein cleavers, etc. Presumably, your nurses are still doing that step. Yes, that's an incredibly important step, you know, and, and how you exactly should do that and what you should use as, as rinsing fluids. I think that's another discussion. But immediately cleaning the working channel and, and not let, you know, debris... Uh, dry into the working channel because then it gets very difficult. It's very, it's that's very important. And the other thing, of course, what we have learned over time is that the drying of endoscopes is incredibly important after you know the high level disinfection. Uh, if you if you do cultures immediately after high level disinfection and you do it after proper drying, that makes a world of a difference uh, with regards to the probability of a scope being still contaminated. Of course, now there are solutions being offered, you know, to make sure that the scope uh, is adequately dried and better dried. And th- those all, I think, add to the solution. None of these steps or procedures is the ultimate solution, but it's kind of all added to more safety of reusable endoscopy. So we have a multi-pronged approach to deal with uh, contaminated endoscopes, including uh, yes. Guidelines, protocols, staff training, disposable accessories, bungs, buttons, etc. Standardized cleaning and drying practices, and as well, sometimes you know, the use of disposable endoscopes. Yes, for me, that's the, the foreseeable future. Because again, based upon the capital equipment investment, you know, all around the world with reusable scopes, um, the inability for many, many, many places in the world and centers to buy into disposable solutions right now is an issue. And also simply the production capacity of the manufacturers is not up to par even to make a very fast uh, switch from uh, reusable to disposable scopes. You know, that takes time. It, eventually, disposable endoscopy will prevail over reusable endoscopy. But um, for the foreseeable future, it's the other way around. We will find specific indications where it's worthwhile to make the investment to use a disposable scope based upon patient safety, based upon logistics, uh, based upon, you know, uh, also, if you would only do 60 recipes uh, per year in a remote area somewhere, it doesn't make much sense maybe to buy two ERCP scopes. Those type of reasoning will facilitate what I believe will be the transition from reusable to disposable endoscopy. But that's not overnight. That will take time. For me, the most important issue right now is that sometimes I talk with colleagues and people and, and they completely ignore the issue. They, they don't see the problem. They always have clean scopes. They have never, ever positive cultures. And I think that's dangerous. I think we are a relatively good unit here in the Erasmus, and we really try to, to take good care of our patients. But we're also honest. You know, we are completely transparent with regards to 
outcome, uh, the good things, but also the bad complications, and also with regards to scopes. Uh, it is how it is, and that's what we report. And again, if we then do the same in the whole Netherlands, and we, found, we find problems also in other hospitals, and then you have also other hospitals around the world in, in different regions reporting the same problem, then who's, who's crazy? Are we crazy? Am I crazy? Or is the one who is ignoring the problem crazy? Again, we should make it bigger than it is, and we should be proactive and find solutions instead of, you know, bashing re reusable endoscopy because that's stupid. You know, reusable endoscopy still does much more good than bad, but we have a responsibility. Now we know that there is a problem, we have the responsibility to, to solve it. Thanks, Bruno. This has given us a lot to think about. I must admit that the situation is more serious than I initially thought. So it was very good to have this chat with you today. Of course, as doctors, it's our first responsibility to ensure that we do no harm and that patients are safe. Clearly, we need to be aware that our endoscopes can become contaminated and adopt the solutions which have been developed, such as improved endoscope designs, advances in reprocessing and scope storage technologies, and of course, continue intensive monitoring and culturing of endoscopes. Another important piece in the puzzle is the training and support for our crucial colleagues who work with the disinfection of our endoscope. Now, thanks to everyone for listening, and I hope that this has given you a lot to think about. As usual, a great thank you to our sponsors at Pentax Medical for supporting our podcast. I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now. By offering solutions like the DEC Duodenoscope, single-use consumables and the Plasma Typhoon and Plasma Bag system, Pentax Medical provides physicians with a portfolio of reusable, semi-disposable and single-use hygiene solutions to improve infection prevention and patient safety in endoscopy.